scratch and smooth. Our very special guest today is a multi-award winning actress who won the hearts and minds of a nation as Hayley Cropper in Coronation Street. Since leaving via a controversial storyline, she's more in demand than ever, starring in a range of new and challenging theatre and TV roles. Ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to Julie Hesmanhausch. So, Julie, it is jaw-droppingly exciting to invite you to a scratch and sniff our programme. And we're here at the Royal Court, presumably doing something sort of shouting in the evenings, as Patrick Troughton once said. But what, what would you be shouting and, and when? And can, we, can you give us any spoilers? Um, well, I'm doing a play in the theatre upstairs here, and it's a fantastic new play by an ace writer called Molly Davis. And it's all set in a primary school, a year four of a, um, a strapped-for-cash primary school. So we're working with actual eight and nine year olds as well. On a grander scale, it's about education and the way that government meddles with it constantly and brings in new systems constantly and the stress that puts on teachers and pupils. And in this particular instance, a quite monstrous woman played by Amanda Abington comes in and with a new sort of behavioural stroke educational system and one of the kids uh, rebels against it and they stage a little revolt and it's about saying enough is enough. So it's brilliant. And I'm the teaching assistant who's going to be phased out by this system and uh, amid defuncts and um, so I've, obviously I'm not happy about it either. And this is a brand new play? It's a brand new play, yeah. yeah. So Royal Court has, a, has quite a, a history of creating, I mean I think Look Back in Anger, that started here, it's one of the earliest plays at the Royal Court. Yeah, absolutely. Everything that they do here is uh, about challenging the establishment and the established norms in society and it always has been and they're keeping that going so it's, it's a real privilege to be in it, it's ace. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about all the stuff you've done, um, but I can call you Hayley, can't I? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's fine. Thought, could we get away with that one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mum calls me Hayley, so you might as well. We're going to talk about uh, Cucumber, the new Russell T Davis drama, obviously Sophie Lancaster, loads of stuff. But if we just start from uh, the beginnings, and what was your home life like, and uh, were there any early hints of the, the actress that was going to be? Um, well, it's a funny thing, really, because I'm, I come from a very, very uh, ordinary family in a very ordinary house in uh, a small industrial town in the northwest called Accrington, uh, famous for its football team. And, um, and actually, I thought there was absolutely no acting in our family before me. But it turns out that a couple of my great-granddads on both sides were... Um, on both sides of my dad's family, uh, were musical uh, acts. So but that, that's quite late information for me. But, uh, but my mum and dad certainly weren't involved in anything like that. They were both office workers. Mm. Um, my dad was very, very... He was a very special man, and he had a, quite a tragic childhood and a thwarted education, um, but was always very interested in literature and music and stuff. So it was quite an unusual terraced house in Accrington that had sort of first edition Graham Greens and, and like Mozart L. Piece, as well as, you know, a telly that constantly had Coronation Street on, you know, so, so I'm sure that influenced it in some way. And um, so, yeah, I think it was just at school, really. I had a teacher um, when I was at primary school who uh, got us all into doing English speaking board exams, which was basically elocution, which, as you can hear, worked out perfectly for me. But what we did was after we recite little poems and do little scenes and do a talk about something that interests us. I seem to remember talking about Michael Caine, bizarrely. I have no idea why. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think that's what got me in on it, really. And, and I do think that it's an amazing thing that, like any child, unless, unless that teacher, Mrs Mulderig, at Iron Park School, hadn't gone, why don't you do this? I probably would have never found my way into it. And I loved it so much. And I always think that is about the sort of potential that you give children. Until that child like, puts a clarinet to their lips and plays it and realises they have like a talent for it, how will they ever know? Or yes. a paintbrush. And yes. I do feel like we're all creative, but you know, it, it's kind of giving children a chance to find out what their area is, you know, and, and I was lucky enough to have that real. I mean, how did your family feel when it got to the point when, hang on, I, I actually really want to do this? Well, I, I applied for the National Youth Theatre when I was 14, and I went down to London. For it's very it. early. It was, yeah. I was really young and, and very innocent. And I moved down to London for two weeks and sort of stayed in a women's hostel in, in Hampstead and caught the tube to Chalk Farm. And, Brilliant. Uh, yeah, it was really, really exciting and quite <laughs> scary. 
Um, but brilliantly, um, the Accrington Observer, our local newspaper, sort of took a picture of me with my acceptance letter and my rubbish 80s hair. And, uh, <laughs> We've all had that. Well, exactly. And uh, I've still got it. And they did an interview with my mum. Um, since this, she's always said, I will never speak to the press again. Because... Uh, We've never, ever stopped ribbing her about it because um, they asked her how, how she felt uh, that I'd got into the National Youth Theatre and beat off all this competition, you know, like a little girl from Accrington. And her response to it was, um, there are enough disappointments in life without going looking for them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, if you know my mum, it's such a more Hesmondalsh kind of thing. But actually, you know, me mum and dad were always really supportive of me. And, um, yeah, I mean... and. I kind of got it. And when I got into um, drama school when I was 18, I mean, I went to a fantastic further education college in Accrington and we had a really inspiring teacher there. Which makes all the difference, doesn't it? Oh, God. I mean, without him, I'd, I, the difference he made to us was that he'd been a working actor and he'd been to drama school himself and he made it seem possible to us. So we'd all done this theatre studies A-level and, and it was a very practical course as well and we all loved it. But none of us, it was a very different world then. This was in like 87, 88. And it wasn't a world where those things seemed possible for kids like us. And unfortunately, I think we're going back into a, a, a world when it will seem as impossible. Mm. You know, now that fees are hiked up and grants are impossible. It's, and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about this recently, about there's only going to be posh actors from wealthy families. Um, but this, this teacher, Martin Cosgriff, just made us feel like it's something we could do. And so we all... That's all and that's all you need, isn't it? Yeah, that, that faith in us and, and just the encouragement and, and the why not-ness of it. And um, so we all auditioned for drama school. At that point, I was still wondering whether or not to be a social worker or a probation officer. Yes, apparently. I mean, obviously, that seems to seep into your life now as, as supporting so many charities and all that. There is a side of you that is perhaps getting to do that in a different sort of way? Well... You know what I mean? I, I do know what you mean, yeah. And I, and I hope that's true, actually, because, because what I've came to realise later is that it, it didn't have to be a choice between... I mean, obviously, God, the, the work that social workers do and the kind of lack of any sort of understanding of what they do is, is very different to what I do. But I feel like it, the art, if that doesn't sound too lofty, you know, mm. whether it be theatre or film or music or telly, as a real capacity to change the world, and it's a massive part of that. And I think that that's why, you know, traditionally right-wing governments don't like art, you know, in, you know, in a real grand Boo. Sorry, <laughs> we're, we're not politically balanced. No, 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 very balanced, very balanced. Get someone else, get some Tory and talk after me. Um, but, yeah, and, it, and I just... I, so I did feel like I wanted to make a difference, you know. It, you know, and it was the 80s, and I was very earnest. And my, it was my brother who just said, well, just try it, audition for drama school, see how you go on. You're from Accrington, nobody does it, you know. So a few of us auditioned, and loads of us got into drama schools, you know, all over the country. That's fantastic. And which, so which drama school did you actually go to? I went to Lambda, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts, and it was a complete culture shock, because I went down, and I remember just before I went, my brother, who'd been to Oxford, who'd got a scholarship to to Oxford um, had said to me, uh, you know, it's going to be a real culture shock when you go down. Um, do you have any sense of yourself as like a working class person? And I was like, no, you know, we've got like a fridge and stuff and, you know, we've, we've got an holiday to Cleveland's, you know, it's like... I didn't, Lou in the backing. <laughs> well, exactly. I didn't feel like that, you know, because it, it, in a way we were all the same in Accrington, you know, so it didn't, it, I didn't have any sort of class consciousness really but I had a very very strong idea of myself as a woman and a feminist and then um, my brother said well I think you'll find when you go down there you'll really see you'll really understand what class is and and just keep hold of that and I remember him saying you know if anyone takes the mick out of your accent spit in their face don't know about that yeah, yeah, he's really hardcore he's proper punk um, <laughs> So I, and I didn't, so I didn't do that. I but think not. No, 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 that would be rude. But, um, Unless they really deserved it. Yeah, well, exactly. But I went down to, to Lambda and I was, indeed, in a class with... Um, well, I was, I was in with Toby Stevens, who's Maggie Smith's son. I was in with people from Eton and Harrow and someone who, who turned out to be an absolutely fantastic actor called Bertie Portal, who's still working, um, had left Sandhurst um, because he'd broken his wrist and ended up coming to Lambda instead. And... And it was, it was a culture shock, but, you know, 
actually part of being alive and is being in the world with lots of different people. And by the third year, we were all rubbing together, you know, really nicely. And, and it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Excellent stuff. So when you got out of drama school, you were anticipating my questions because I was going to ask you who your contemporaries were and you, you just pretty well told me, anybody else, anybody else? Give us names, names. Oh, I've got names. Oh, get oh give us names. Oh, I had an amazing, I had an amazing year. Well, the weird thing is, that, like, there were, uh, when I was at Lambda, over the three years there, there were five of us from Accrington, which in itself is extraordinary, I think. And uh, so there we had Toby Stevens, we had uh, Alan Cox, who's Brian Cox's son, who's a fantastic actor, um, Steve Emery, who's now Steve Moyer, who is uh, the lead in True Blood. Okay, wow. Yeah, yeah, he, he, was, uh, he was in my year. Um, Benito Martinez, who was in The Shield. Mm. I lived with Benny for, for years. Yeah, so this... this oh, no, that'll do, that'll do. Yeah, there's quite, it was quite, quite some big names there, you know, it was amazing. The early parts you did, I noticed, was Pat and Margaret. Now, I'm a huge Victoria Wood oh, fan. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know if it was just bringing on the crumpets in Act 5 or whatever, but, I mean, did you get a chance to observe and, and, and sort of get nurtured a little bit under the wing of the great Victoria? Um, well, I, I, I literally had, like, three lines. So, so I only had a day on it, and, and it was actually in a really, really dry period for me work-wise so it was really wonderful and people still talk to me about it because you know obviously Pat and Margaret yeah. still fantastic. It's, it's fantastic and it still stands and I did have I think the best line in the whole thing which was John go and sniff that mince for me uh, <laughs> <laughs> brilliant um, but yeah that was amazing and I actually worked with a director on that called Gavin Miller who'd given me my first telly job which was a Catherine Cookson miniseries where I'd had to speak Geordie incredible in a mop cap did you have one foot on the on the ground and one on the bed or something like that? Was it a little bit cheeky or? What do you mean? No, that didn't come out very well. You know, <laughs> Catherine Cook, Catherine Cookson. I'm sort of thinking of you know. You're thinking oh, Jackie Collins. Am I thinking of Jackie Collins? No, no, no. Catherine Cookson's very mild. You know, there was a, there's a bit of you know, yeah, yeah. Zooming the, into the, the fireplace. I'm, yeah, the man I married was in love with the the with Sissy who brought her siblings in a cave. Oh right. Oh, and right. I was Rose the plain and ungainly Miller's daughter who he married for money, not for love. Um, but it, that was a fantastic, and that mm. was a real baptism of fire. I mean, I remember my first scene being around a kitchen table with loads of. Geordie kids and I had to hand out cups of tea to them all and hunks of bread and cheese. Remember the order I'd done that in while speaking to Geordie accent in front of Geordie kids. You know, and up there, yeah. they're so particular about accents. Right. I mean, probably just, I was doing the most general rubbish thing, but you know, I felt like it was great. Um, so yeah, right. so, so it was the same director who did Pat and Margaret as well, so I owe him a lot. Joe, go and sniff that mince for me. Scratch and sniff. You're listening to a brand new series of SNS Online with this week's special guest, Julia Hesmanhalsh. Nothing would make me not want to see you again, Haley. This might. Why? What is it? Well, it's something to do with my past. Your past? Several years past now, but. What? I'm a transsexual. I mean, I'm not a female by birth, Roy. Let's get to Hayley, men, because obviously that was a huge part of your life and it's not really something we can really avoid in the interview and all would want to. Oh, no, no, and I'm, and I'm incredibly proud of that. I'm, I went to... Uh, I went to a do this week, which was kind of a charity do, and um, and they'd brought me in to, and they were giving a, a donation to a charity that I'm involved in uh, to do like a bit of a Q and A thing, and uh, and a lot of people in this organisation, which we've made nameless, um, and they told me this just before I went on, which was brilliant. It was just like oh, a lot of people didn't want you, you know, they were like, oh, she's just in a soap. What do we want her for? And this woman was saying, oh, she's not just in a soap. You know, she's done all this stuff and everything. And I was like, hang on a minute. I just, I need to say to you right now that that soap, you know. Continuing drama, folk opera, I, as William Roach says, whatever you want. But that's, yeah. Folk opera's good. I've not heard that. I know, I like yeah, that. William Roach said that. Did, yeah. did he coin that? That's, I've not heard that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't mind the term soap at all, you know, it's because it's, you know, language evolves, doesn't it? And it's, uh, but I, I'm really, really proud of what we did in that and the audiences we reached with some really, really, 
big issues, oh, you know, and um, and I know that that's what I'll always be remembered for, and I'm very proud of that. And of course, it's also the new rep now, really. I mean, so many actors, soap is there, is what they cut their their cloth on. They'll mm. cut, cut their cloth on. Is that right? Um, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> cut their. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just being a, a bit overwhelmed by the presence of Haley, you see. But, You're mixing um, your metaphors, but yes. that's fine. <laughs> Touching cloth, yeah. cutting teeth. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that was one of the things I was going to ask you about. Obviously, you've got... You're playing the same character week in, week out. Um, the, very hard work, long hours and all the rest of it. But at the same time, you have these wonderful, challenging storylines, fantastic actors to work with, and also security. So it, it's, it's uh, sort of getting that balance right, isn't it? Well, it, it's not as secure as you think. I mean, I, I think, you know, when you get to the point that I was at, then it's as a secure a job as you can get, you know, on telly, really. But, but you know, you're only on short contracts, and it is very hard. And, and actually, you know, if you're only in for a certain amount of episodes spread out over a period of time, um, it, it, you know, the, the pay is really, really bad. And I'm, when I say that, I mean it's minimum wage because you're being paid per episode and you're only being paid for a certain amount of episodes over time. Now, actually, you used to be in skin, so, you know, but it, you're not allowed to do anything else as well. And also there's an assumption that you're earning a fortune, like footballers' wages, and, that, you know, so... It comes with a lot of difficulties that are very hard for younger actors in particular to negotiate. I think, think uh, me and Andy particularly, my partner Andy, um, we feel very sorry if somebody's having to have their hair cut in Audrey's salon and they're desperate to say something. But we know if they say one word, they're going like, to get 25 quid or something like yeah. that. So yeah. they're putting all this performance in and they can't say a bloody word. Oh, sweetheart, that's awful. Mm. Yeah, actually, Corey's not the worst for that. Brooke used to be the worst for that. Oh, right. They'd have like full-on like, you know, demonstrations or strikes and people would be like... <laughs> couldn't form a word because like Rookie was so tight and wouldn't pay him you know it's like always doing these really big left wing stories but actually not wanting to pay the people playing the like union workers but, it's so um, funny it's so it funny. funny it's funny but it is it is an apprenticeship there and I certainly you know I, I mean I couldn't have anticipated the, the lovely storylines I had mm. and, and by the end the workload because you do what you're doing is filming sort of 15 episodes um simultaneously so because you're filming three episodes three weeks worth of episodes all at the same time so you're pre-shooting one week shooting and post-shooting you've done if you're dead alive exactly. <laughs> lying down in a coma it's completely like that you really don't know and because there's a lot of exposition there has to be a lot of repetition so the actual graft of learning the lines i use the word graft advisedly do you know what i mean you know it's not like working down a pit um, <laughs> But, you know, the learning of the lines and the knowing where you are and the, the speed and the amount of pages that you record in one day, these are things that people don't realise. And, and it's only after leaving, really, and doing another TV series and seeing the luxury of... Time, just time. Time, space, production values, you know, and, and I don't mean that in a snobby way about Corrie. It's just, it's just about the factory nature of it. And also just things like soft lighting and music and, and things that help a scene along. If you strip that away from some of the great dramas of our time, you'd be left with something pretty bare and flat. And Corey don't have any of that. That's why I find Corey works so well, because it is stripped so bare. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you're pretty well churning out a feature film or two feature films yeah. a week in terms of the, the yeah. materials going out there. Yeah, yeah, it's two and a half hours a week, yeah. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's massive. And it's a real team, and the crew are just super professional and brilliant. And I tell you, the only time I remember them playing um, music, I think it was Alf uh, Roberts had a heart attack, uh -huh. and they played this weird bomb, 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 bomb. Um, we were looking at each other saying, what, where's that coming from? Is that from a nearby radio? Because we just weren't used to having music on Corrie. Did they really? Very did, strange. Did they really? Is that an actual memory? Or have you, oh, no, have no, you... no, I didn't make that up. Really? Really? God, that is, because that is very unusual. It was very brief, but it was just like, but this just is music. So They're trying to create an atmosphere oh, here. Yeah, yeah. Very strange. Yeah, yes. that is, that's very unhouse style. <laughs> oh. Probably a different director that week. Mm. So the first transsexual character in TV, a huge responsibility. Did you take any flack in real? life from you know people probably not worth mentioning but I mean well, was it a struggle no no it wasn't a struggle at all it was an absolute privilege and I've always been really clear about that I mean what what's interesting about it is that 
And the role was created, and, and I only found this out afterwards, really, is that Roy was going to have a string of disastrous dates. Haley was going to be the first. Oh. oh! And this was going to be the big joke that, oh, oh, he falls for it, and then she turns out, in the parlance of the day, to be a bloke. Um, now, I was already really involved in LGBT sort of politics and stuff, and, and that was not on my radar, that they would do it in an irresponsible way. And I'd been brought up not just on Corrie, but on Brookie as well, on an EastEnders that were very issue-led. And, and, and it was my hope to someday be in something where you could reach a mass audience with something like that. And I'm not making that up, but you ask any of my mates, that was something that I absolutely wanted to do. So an absolute gift of a part for you. Absolute gift. I mean, and, I mean it didn't really tally with what they were thinking of for it. But when I went for my audition, I, I researched, you know, transgenderism as best I could. You know, it was pre-Google, so I was like, <laughs> I mean, to go to like... You got anything about it? Well, exactly. There was a, a radical bookshop in Manchester called Frontline Books, and I went there straight away after my audition. And, gays a word. Uh, yeah, well, I was in Manchester. We, oh, yes, we had yeah. no gays a word. It was all gays a word. And, um, and, yeah, and I went and... Uh, and so I made it clear that I wanted to do it properly. Now, when I say properly, it was very sketchy. And it was very, um, you know, characterful in a Coronation Street way. And, and I couldn't really speak to anyone about it because it was top secret as well. And the, the trans pressure groups at the time, the Press for Change in particular, were, were very, very anti me playing this part. They, they, they called me a young upstart, which I loved because I was 27. I mean, Did they want the genuine trans? Yes, to, uh... yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually, and I've said this a lot recently, you know, on leaving, that now it would be unacceptable yeah. to, to cast me because there, there, there are trans actors now and it should go to them. At that time, I still to this day say it would have been intolerable pressure on a trans person to be have that level of fame and also have to come out mm. as trans in, in the sort of culture of the day, it would have been awful, mm. you know. And so it went to me and all I could do was assure sort of the trans community, you know, I know that's a horrible reductive term, but, um, <laughs> we know you. but you know what I mean, mm. that, that, I would, that I would take it very seriously mm. and that I would do it as responsibly as I could. And I just played it. Straight, I played it as a love story. Unfortunately for me, I was working with David Nielsen, who's amazing. He's fantastic. He's amazing, and there was and there was like that sort of weird chemistry that happens just sometimes when you're working with someone, and it works, and people, the public, got behind the relationship, and that's the way to change the world. That really is, and I've said this so many times. So pardon me for, for it's fine. Um, repeating myself, but it was for me. Being in the supermarket in Accrington and my elderly lady's coming up to me and saying, when are you and Roy getting married? And me saying, well, we're not allowed to because Hayley's transgender and, and them going, never mind that, they should be together. And that, to me, is the basis of all tolerance. Never mind that, never mind that difference. If two people love each other, let them be married. And of course, ultimately that became possible and is now possible. I think both the characters just killed us all with kindness because they were just... I remember when Roy started and he was a rather creepy landlord of yeah. Deirdre's. Yeah. We yeah. thought, oh, Deirdre's a bit dodgy, isn't he? And yeah. um, it's just extraordinary how that's, how that's evolved over the years. Yeah. And you, you were you working in the Freezer Centre, weren't you? Yes. <laughs> for Curly. Yes, for Curly, yeah, exactly. Well, I was being set up on a date with Curly when I met Roy. That was the thing. But I... Um, it was really... It, it was really that love story and, and, and the fact that that love story was enduring and conservative with a small say. You know, they're the most conservative characters on the street, even though Roy was kind of a little bit strange and eccentric and Haley was... He's no more, no more than me, or no less. Uh, well, I, I know. And, and, and That's I think, the clearest folk. <laughs> exactly. And it just worked, and it just worked, and we would, and, and that, and, you know, and, and eventually when stuff started to change in the law, you know, Coronation Street, was congratulated for Haley and having made a massive impact on public perceptions of trans people. And I'll, you know, I'll take that to my grave as one of my proudest achievements. I've got pancreatic cancer. I'm just determined to make the most of what I've got left. I just can't bear it that you're being so brave. <laughs> How long will I love you? I guess I'll be seeing you. Will you love him, comfort him, honour and protect him? Tell her we're thinking about her. I will. Longer if I can.
at the end, obviously, with it being the pancreatic cancer storyline, I mean, I couldn't ever have dreamt that I would have a storyline. It was such a gift of a storyline that's opened so many doors for me since. And a controversial end as well, which in itself is, is, is um, you know, something to discuss. Yeah, I mean, it, it raised loads of Right awareness. to die. Yeah, uh, yeah well, the, the pancreatic cancer thing on its own was like a massive issue because um, people who are involved in pancreatic cancer um, charities... Um, have had a real struggle to get it to, to be listened to about the lack of funding about that because it's one of the biggest killers with no funding, no research. It gets 1% of cancer research funding because it's very hard to spot. So they took the opportunity. Well, actually, no, they didn't. A petition had been set up to get more funding. And, and you know, there's an e-petition scheme now where if you get 100,000 signatures, yeah. it gets a, a parliamentary debate. And that coincided with Haley's storyline. And so we managed to get it to 100,000 um, just in time. And uh, and we went to Parliament. So I sat in Parliament and heard the parliamentary debate on that, you know, with Maggie Watts, who'd set up the, the petition after losing her husband and who helped me massively with the, the last bit of, of Haley's illness. So there was that, and then there was the right to die stuff, which completely went bananas. But can I just say about the Parliament thing, isn't it extraordinary? You're, you're an actor, and all these incredible things are shooting off from it. They're, yeah. they're so life-enhancing. Oh, I mean, beyond my wildest dreams, mm. you know, to be there. And I'm not taking responsibility for that. I was just the face of it, but it, yeah. was, just, it was just really timely. Mm. And sometimes things just work out like that. And then the right to die storyline yeah. hit the headlines just as the bill was going through. Um, Lord Faulkner's bill about it. Um, it was beautifully timed. That sorry, it, it really, really was, and and it, it, the front page of the tabloids as well, as well as the broadsheets, like talking about it and using Haley as like a discussion point for it. And whatever you think about that issue, it created a debate, and it was really, really exciting and a little bit scary, but really, really exciting to be in the midst of that. I'm I'm a member at British Humanist Association, and um, you know, and that's just something I've. I am, you know, but it's not like a... Uh, it's not something that I was kind of wear, particularly. <laughs> but because they, because people, the press got hold of that, it, it suddenly became like that. I was this, like, humanist avenger, sort of, yeah. like, trying to get people to, like... Dodgy hippie. ...kill themselves. Yeah, exactly. And it was like, I don't have any, I don't have any control over these storylines. I'm just doing it. And if you ask me what I think about it, I will tell you, you know, but... But again, it was just an incredible thing. So amazing. to be part of that conversation and have these amazing writers, because the Corrie writers are amazing, talking about that stuff in a really thorough and complex way, mm. night after night, I mean, just just amazing. Fantastic. So just in terms of you were there about 15 years on and off? It was 16 years. 16 years. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of the highlights, obviously we talked about the end of Hayley, which was very traumatic, uh, but wonderful gift as an actor. What are the highlights in terms of your storylines? Well, all those things that I've said, really, the, the moments when, when the storyline coincided with things moving mm. in, in the wider society, that, those are the things that, you know... I'll, that'll never leave me. And, but then, you know, there's just all the fun stuff, you know, like... Tony Gordon in the factory. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that, that is actually one of my favourite times ever. Carlos had this coming a long time. Haley's done out. Fair enough. But Roy Cropper, on the other hand, guilty as charged. All he did was tell the truth. Oh. I'm not going anywhere, so I know Carlos said so. Please, don't kill Frenzy, then! And that was the start of everything, really, because that was the start of Hayley and Roy getting married and, and all that. And, and um, I must say, that the scenes with you and Alison King are just so... I mean, God, she's just... I mean, they all are fantastic. People ask me, aren't you angry? Why aren't you railing against the universe? I would be. Well, I've had my moments, believe me. But then I remember. But for you confronting Tony, persuading him to let me go and keep you here, I'd have gone up in flames with this place. So, every year I've had since has been a bonus. <laughs> what? Only you could see it that way. Thank you. 
that started then. That was our... And I didn't really know Ali very well then either because we didn't have a lot together. She was in the factory, but we... You know, she was in the office and, and us being sort of... We, we made a mini-film that week, you know, because we were all sort of tied up in, in this special set that got burnt down. And we became really good friends then. And the writers just took that and ran with it. And right to the end, that was like such a special bit of Haley's journey. And of course, Jenny uh, McAlpine as well, I mean, who started very young, you, you, was, you were fostering her, the character. And uh, yeah. so you've got to know her as she's grown up. Haley, you're being dead brave. No. <laughs> yeah, the way you're carrying on. Yeah, you are. It's, that's not brave, that's all I can do. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jen, and Jenny's an extraordinary person. She's so incredible and she's very very involved her, her dad runs a charity called mood swings network in manchester which is a mental health charity and and she she works there you know she she works there like as much as she works at corrie she's incredible you know she get the time <laughs> well i know i know she's just got incredible energy she's off now she's off having a beer i know she is yes yes <laughs> <laughs> um i was gonna say well, one of the issues in corrie and andy and i we would be great on Gogglebox because we always say that character wouldn't say that and we, we you know all, all the, oh, really? but but with that this is a very bad way of phrasing it, but there were never any flies on Roy and Haley at all in terms of, I didn't think. Was there any time, I could have phrased that a lot better, but was there any time when you said, no, I don't want her to say that or do this? Mm, yeah. Are, are, you, are you allowed to mention it? Well, probably not. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, there was one, there was one dud note in the entire cancer story okay. where I had a scene um, with Roy and they wanted me to say, uh, it treated me, he'd cut me an anniversary dinner in the cafe, and I'd, I, they wanted me to say to him, oh, I should have got cancer sooner. And it seemed so glib for Hayley to say that. And also, it just didn't seem honest to me, because Roy's always been very attentive to her yes. and, and caring of her. And that's been the beautiful thing about it, that she's never had any complaints about the way he is with her. And so, and what it was is that uh, someone on the production team, someone in their family had said that, and, and it had really hit home, and it was a good line of dialogue, but it wasn't it right for us. And I really, really fought yeah. to get that removed and did. You know, and it was a bit of a battle, but it, sometimes you have to... I've got absolute complete respect for the Corrie writers. They are amazing, and it's what makes it brilliant. And they have quite a tr tricky time sometimes, particularly in the last year and a half, oh. I think, with actors not being available for one reason or another. They've had to go down different tangents and make it work. It's incredibly difficult, and the mm. balance between sort of character and humour and drama mm. and keeping the younger viewers involved mm. and everything... And the, and, and the exposition, just the, the pure discipline of having to get that much exposition in cleverly, you yes. know. And they are brilliant. And, we, and me and David had the best of the writing, absolutely, without a doubt. Um, I, mean, I would just say that some of the other characters lend themselves to more extraordinary storylines. Whereas, because of the way your characters were, you, you were allowed a more nuanced, subtle... Yeah, but still... I think it were, I mean, every time they gave us like a crazy storyline. So, like the, the Tracy Barlow one's a great example, yeah. where Roy um, uh, thinks he's, he's made Lovely Kate Ford, of course. Oh, gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous. Um, and he, he thinks that he's made her pregnant because she's drugged him, you know. And when we heard about that, I mean, you just imagine being told that. Okay, so, so Roy has a one night stand with Tracy, but he doesn't really, and she pretends she's pregnant with his baby, and then she goes to have a termination, and we pay her not to, and then we bring up the child, and then she takes it back. You're just like, that is ridiculous. Bonkers. But actually, it was one of our favourite storylines. I reckon that's what Roy's dreaming on a little girl to run into his arms when he comes around the counter. But what happens if the kid's not his? Well, it's just one of these hypothetical questions. It's your baby. And it was so brilliant because it gave, it was all this like rich stuff. The the tragedy of it was there because Roy and Ellie's chance to have a child, but also just like you know all the stuff with Blanche around that time and Roy coming down the stairs like after <laughs> after waking up in Tracy's bed. <laughs> it's like just amazing. <laughs> so it's like yeah. So we did have some bonkers ones, but that is the skill of the writing. So I, me and David, very very rarely would ask to change anything. Some some actors can get a bit too um, mm. carried away with themselves about that. So that's a good full stop to the to the Corrie section. I mean, one final thing: Do you still watch Coronation Street? In the, presumably, is it more just to see your mates, or are you curious to know what's actually happening? 
Well, I've always been a Coronation Street fan and I've watched it all my life. I mean, what it is, and, and you'll know this, is that it's very hard to sort of keep on top of it because I've done a lot of theatre this year as well. And so it's on in the evening. So what I'm finding is I get quite a lot backed up on planning. So what happens is, is that um, if something big's happening, if there's like a week of something like going on, like, you know, Tina's death or Roy going to Blackpool and things like that, I do, I do tend to find it from Twitter. You are looking over Roy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, completely. So I'll watch those episodes, you know, I'll, I'll find them and watch them. But, but I'm, I'm not watching regularly, but not from any sense of, mm. like, I've left and that's it. It's just a matter of, like, getting back into it again. Scratch and sniff. And now it's time to hear from Julie's fellow cast members waxing lyrical about that final Hayley storyline and the acting of Julie herself. I think most of us are fans of the show as well, so we watch yeah. it as fans. And, um, it, you know, Hayley is without a doubt an iconic Coronation Street mm. character. She just is. And it's been amazing to see this journey over 16 years and, and, and they had to give her a, a proper send-off. And There's I think no way the writers and storylines have no. Yeah, no, me in a black cap. There's no way she'd be in a black cap. She wouldn't. To be in that category with them actors is an absolute honour, you know? So I'm happy with that. I really am. Do you think it's a given that Julie's going to pick up that oh, award? Oh, 100%. And if she doesn't, there's something wrong. You know, I love Julie to bits. And I think I think the nature will agree with me in this one. That how it's been played this week with a death and so I think, wow. Julie, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Were you remotely expecting it or not? I mean, there was so much love in the room for you. It sounds a bit cheesy, but there really was. <laughs> well, well, no, well, I honestly wasn't, because because there were three of us up from Corrie. Um, we thought we'd split the Corrie yeah. balls. And, and honestly, and I know I'm going to sound like I'm saying this, but I didn't mind losing to Jessie at all, because I think she's wonderful. She you know? said the same about you, though. Did she? Yeah. Oh, that's not... Then she even knows who I am. It's like, brilliant. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, she said she'd been watching the, the Goodbye Hayley story. I'm so glad I knew you, Roy. Thank you. Thank you for all of it. I, I'm the one who should be grateful. Well, let's not row about it, eh? I've been so lucky. I've not swapped the few years we had for a thousand of anyone else's. Because I know what it is to be loved. Truly loved. I, I hope you do too. What ways? Then remember it. But I do find it hard. I do find it hard to watch David, you know, playing Roy and just being this lost soul now. And, and, and when people are talking about Ailey, I'm just like, oh, I can't, I can't bear it. I mean, it's really amazing thing that they've kept me me, Hayley, so alive mm. in it by constantly talking about her and... Well, my take on it is you gave so much of yourself into Hayley, not that I'm saying you are Hayley or anything like that, but there are, there are similarities in the humanist side and all the rest of it, mm. but, but there's a truth there in that performance, and when people see something that really works for them, it, it, it will resonate for the rest of their lives. I mean, there's certain characters you remember in the past because of the connection of character and actor, well, yeah, I may be. Well, I mean, that's very, well, that's very nice of you to say. I mean, I, I hope so. I mean, I think that she was a very good influence on me, you know, and, and if you play someone as nice as Hayley for that long, <laughs> hopefully it rubs off a bit. Do you know what I mean? God, I'm miles more of a bitch than she is. Yeah. But, um, that sounds more interesting. Well, I don't know. I mean, well, Hayley had a side as well. But, um, but yeah, it was... Um, it's, it's quite hard not to be part of it now. Yeah. It was my choice to leave, and I feel like... I've had an incredible year and I've no regrets, but Haley's a part of me and separate from me at the same time. And I do find it a little bit hard and weird thinking about it. And when I see clips now, I get back, I went on breakfast telly the other day and they showed all these clips. I'm very emotional, because um, you, you said you wanted to leave, didn't you? And then they found a way because yes. to write you out, as it were. Did you have any kind of say in that at all? No, none at all, no. I'm, I went to the producer at the beginning of last year yeah. and said that I wanted to leave. And I knew that, that she would have to die. I knew that there was no way they were ever going to split Roy and Haley up. And I found myself getting feeling a bit... Not upset, God, that would be pathetic, but, <laughs> but like a bit, a bit sort of like, oh, wobbled by it. And I, have to, and I have to try and explain to him that I'm like, not like crying at my great acting. Like, oh, look at me being so brilliant in my death scene or whatever. It's just, it's about watching Hayley, 
who's this person that I loved, who I kind of killed. Yeah. You know, yes, you did. <laughs> and I feel, and what that's done to Roy, I feel responsible. <laughs> On that note, we'll leave uh, Coronation Street. <laughs> Miss me. I miss all of y'all. Hey! Hey! Now, there's something that you and a previous guest of ours on SNS Online, Katie Manning, both have in common. You've both spoken lines written by the great bard himself, Russell T. Davis. Now, what was it like to get the call and work on this new drama, Cucumber? Oh, well, it was amazing. I mean, I'd got, um, I got called in for an audition for it, and I loved the part. The part was Cleo, which is the sister of the, the lead character, Henry, who's the kind of one who sort of spirals off into, like, a major midlife crisis. And, um, and I loved it, and I thought, oh, yeah, this is, this is quite... This is something I could play. She's very like me, though she's like a mother of three, and she's kind of, you know, got a lot going on. But, but different enough from Hayley, presumably, too. Oh, yeah, well, much more like yeah. me as me, I suppose. OK. But at the audition, the director said to me, yeah, yeah, you're playing it all like this, and quite low status and scatty. Um, but, you know, she's a really successful estate agent. And in that moment, all my confidence sort of seeped from me, and I thought, oh, my God, they want, like, they want, like, Carla Connor, you know, and, and I saw it's complete, and I was like, oh, I'm not right for this at all. And I suddenly realised that the sort of person that this character could be. So I kind of walked out thinking, well, that's not going to happen then. But that was, but it was lovely to be in a room, and I know Russell a little bit from all the sort of LGBT stuff that we've sure. done over the years in Manchester, mm -hmm. and, and he's a massive Cory fan, he's Russell. Mm -hmm. and, I'm a massive Russell fan, oh, and a Cory fan, and well, a Doctor Who fan. Exactly, yeah. when you know he used to write for Cory as well, did yeah. Russell, so... And, and he also knows my husband because he wrote The Grand, which was my... Of course, your husband's a, a writer as well as actor. Yes, but he used he's not an actor anymore, but he was, and he was in The Grand, which was one of Russell's first things. So. Yes, I remember that. So they knew each other as well. So, so yeah, um, so when I got it, so it was lovely to be in the room with him and, and, and to just read his words and read this script, and I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. And, um, and then I got it, and I couldn't believe it. I absolutely, and then, hilariously, they said to me, um, yeah, you've read the first three episodes, maybe uh, you need to read the fourth before you accept the job. And I was laughing, and I said to my husband, oh, my I, mean, yeah. I can't imagine what it's going to be. It's going to be my next question. Well, I was like, I was like oh, what, what could it be? It's like, like a sex scene or something. <laughs> and then I started reading, like, on the computer, they sent me episode four, and I started reading it, and I was like, okay. I'm on a date! I'm on a date! And it was like, and, and sure enough, but um, I do have a little bit of a sex scene. Yeah. Which is a far cry from Hayley, but it's bad sex, which is a lot easier to do than good sex, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I How many people were in the room at the time? About 30 or something? <laughs> Yeah, but it was great. It was, it was really funny because um, uh, Vince, who plays Henry, had had to do quite a lot of snogging and stuff. And, and you know, and uh, it, such a bore. Uh, yeah, and, and, uh, and I said to him. So, so are, you, are, are we allowed to ask, are you heterosexual in this? Because it is oh, a, yes, a gay yeah, drama. Yeah, yeah, I'm heterosexual, yeah. And, uh, and he said to me, um, and I said, how is it? You know, what, what's it been like, you know, getting off with all these people? And he went, well, actually, I was really nervous about it. And then once you sort of get over yourself, you're a bit like, oh, this is quite a nice way to spend an afternoon. And, and I took that on, and, it, and that's exactly what it is. And I was talking about it yesterday, and I was just like, actually, it was just like, well, this is nice, just having an afternoon snogging. This is good. Cool. <laughs> Could like, be down the pit or something, as he was just saying earlier. Exactly, and it's just like, no recriminations, no shame, no guilt, just like rolling around in a bed with someone for a, a day. It's great. So, um, and it's just, I cannot begin to tell you how brilliant this series is. It's so rich and and it's got 100 characters in it. And it's dealing with, like, 40-plus gay community. Is that right, or am I generalising...? That is too much of a generalisation. Okay. It's, well, it's really, really hard. It's really, really hard to sort of pin it down. Um, it's a very separate entity, presumably, from Queer as Folk, which obviously a lot of people are going to make the connections with. Completely, and, and I think that... Russell, in particular, is very keen for it to... to, to it's set in Manchester, so those okay. comparisons are going to be inevitable. But what I see it as is more of a Tales of the City for Manchester. Fantastic. We love Tales of the City. Absolutely. So, so it's a sprawling story of friendships and relationships. And coincidences. And yes, yeah. yeah, and chance meetings and, and, you know, events that happen that spiral out of control and, and uh, lots of moments that where things could be put right and aren't. And, and it's a proper comedy drama. It's laugh-out-loud funny, but it's also, you know, extremely moving. Can I stay? Get him. 
three interconnecting new series across three channels. Tackling sex, love and relationships. We never did it, really. Too much detail. I hardly know you. Can I see you again? Absolutely not. I think you're beautiful. What? Stop texting me and delete this number. Cucumber, banana, tofu. Coming January on 4E4 and 4OD. There's 100 people in it. And, and all different kinds of people. Young, old. It's the most diverse cast I've ever been part of. Because apparently it's, it spreads out. Um, there's uh, another one called Banana, which I think is online. But there's three different Not incarnations. Yes. What it is, is... is um, Russell's written all the cucumber, and so cucumber's on Channel 4 from 9 till 10, uh, which is quite early. There'll be a bit of a fuss about that, mm. but Channel 4 have been... Same time slot as Queer as Folk, I think. Mm, oh, I, perhaps not. I think Queer as Folk was 10. Oh, was it? OK, OK. I think so. I don't know if I'm sure, but they were very, very certain they didn't want it to be marginalised because it's about gay sex. And then you turn over at 10 o'clock to E4, and then you have Banana, which is standalone half-an-hour stories, where a character you might have seen in Cucumber, you follow into Banana, and they're written by different young gay writers. And Brilliant. then you can go online after that, and that's Tofu. And Tofu. Tofu. <laughs> and Tofu is interviews uh, with people about their experiences as sex and the sexual awakening and bad sex and good sex. And tofu, banana and cucumber are the three stages of male erection. <laughs> so that's, yes, that's that all makes sense now. Yeah. Oh, right, OK. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it, it is, and it's, I, I have no hesitation in saying that it's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. Fantastic. You wanna So, Julie, let's talk about some of the theatre work you've done. And I know you were in the um, Black Roses, The Killing of Sophie Lancaster, which initially was a Radio 4 play. He was backcombed and pierced. He was perfectly weird. We walked through Manchester hand in hand. We were both in league with the colour black, not knowing exactly who we were, but both agreed on what we were not. You're filming us at the moment. Yes, we filmed it. Um, it's uh, what happened was it was uh, Simon Armitage had written a kind of epic poem um, about Sophie Lancaster, who was a young woman who was murdered in a park not far from where I grew up um, in Lancashire, and she was set. Her and her boyfriend were set upon by a group of lads because they were dressed in a goth-like way, and uh, and. He survived and Sophie died from her injuries. Uh, she was kicked to death, basically. She died from her injuries two weeks later. This was in 2007. The radio play is very it's harrowing it, listening to. It's absolutely harrowing. And it, and it was one of those radio plays, um, like Spoonface, where lorry drivers were having to pull over outside at motorway. And so it was poetry spoken as if by Sophie, um, uh, read by Rachel Austin, who went on to do the play, interspersed with actual interviews with Sylvia Lancaster, Sophie's mum, talking about her life and death, and about and you know and Sylvia subsequently set up a foundation in Sophie's memory, which is about um, promoting tolerance and also campaigning for legislation for her, uh, hate crime to include alternative cultures like punk and goth, mm. because there's a huge amount of attacks on people because of their different yeah. way of expressing themselves. So um, so I'd already been involved in the charity because me and my husband had set up a, a creative writing competition and, and uh, in Sophie's memory, and it was all about kind of difference. Fantastic. And so I knew Sylvia through that. And then when they started talking about making it into a stage production, Sylvia wanted me to play her. Um, we're from really similar neck of the woods, you know, she's just from a few, um, a few miles up the road from me. Um, it's really interesting because I don't think Simon Armitage uh, thought it would work on stage. He was very dubious about it. Um, I only found that out afterwards, thank goodness. <laughs> um, but we did it on stage at the Royal Exchange in the studio and I took time out from Coronation Street to do that. And that's what changed everything for me, actually, because it made me realise that, actually, I wanted to do all this stuff because it was an incredible experience. Well, also, you're an actor. I want to play different parts. Yeah, you? yeah, but I'd, I'd kind of lost that. I was just, like, really happy because I loved it at Corrie and I had this great part and I used to tell everybody I'll be here till, for the rest of my life. Yes. And then just having this one opportunity to do this and it was something that I, I couldn't say no to that was what set me off on the journey of deciding to leave Corrie. 
So we did it on stage and it, and it was, you know, extremely successful and, and, you know, people were really, it was incredible. You know, at the end of it, people would just sit in silence for five minutes sometimes, you know, it was just amazing. And then we, um, we went back and did that again um, after I'd left Corrie and we took it on tour to community centres and schools, which up there with, with Hayley is one of the most, incredible things I've ever been part of. To do that play in tiny little community centres in the middle of like estates in West Cumbria and stuff. Incredible. And um and yeah and now we've just filmed it. We've just filmed it for BBC Learning. Um, which is really exciting. And um, we had a fan, Sue, who's Simon's partner, who, who co-directed it at the Royal Exchange, uh, directed it. And, um, and yeah, so that'll be out sometime in, in the new year and the foundation are gonna use that film, you know, for, to further the work in schools. And that's gonna get out to more people than ever to be aware of what's mm, going yeah, on as well. well it, was, it became something where a lot of like police forces and schools wanted us to take the play to the schools, but it's just not possible for us to take it yeah. everywhere. So, so this is hopefully a good way of being able to get it out there. And can I just uh, say readers that um, Julie won the 2013 Manchester Theatre Award for this. So uh, congratulations. <laughs> and also, all your awards for Corrie as well. I mean, where, where do you keep them all? In the attic or something? <laughs> it's not that many, to be honest with you. They're on my window bottom in my bedroom. Even for doorstops. And stuff. <laughs> well, everyone, you know, everyone always says that, don't they? Like, oh, the place in the toilet or everything. No, they're, they're on my window bottom. And it's nice to sort of, They're all kind of see-through, so they don't, they're not blocking any lights. Oh, I love it, I love it. <laughs> Scratch and sniff. So, Julie, it's a Desert Island Risks slot now where you get a chance to choose a piece of music, either reflecting something personal, uh, professional, or just because it makes your feet tap, or all three. OK, um, well, uh, this song has become a little bit of a, a family anthem for us. I, there's so many songs I could choose, but this is one I'm going to go for, um, because it is um, very unlike most of the music that I love, and... It is the song that I actually cannot not dance to. So if I'm at disco, you could be telling me the tragedy of your life. And if this song came on, I would have to say, excuse me, <laughs> and dance. And we all love it. And it is the song that I will have at my funeral. And it is Reach by S Club. <laughs> oh, bless you. We love you for that, my darling. Let's hear it. Let's hear it.
Scratch and Sniff. With Nick Randall, S Club and Reach, you're listening to Scratch and Sniff Online and tonight's show, which is from the rehearsal rooms of the Royal Court Theatre, with my special guest, Julia Hesemanhausch. Now, if you want to contact us about this or any other show, then do check out our Facebook page, SNS Online, whilst our Twitter account is Scratch and Tweet. Past shows are available by searching on SoundCloud for SNS Online and MixCloud by searching for me, Nick Randall. Well, back to the interview now, and does Julie have any concerns with both the quality of women's roles in scripts and potential long-term ageism in the profession? Well, it's absolutely true. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole set of people who are invisible on telly, and, uh, and they're people from ethnic minorities and older women, mainly, you know, and it, and it is an issue, but I think it is getting better. Mm. And actually, one of the things that was a real sticking point for me in my decision to leave Corrie and, and one of the major pros of being there is that Corrie consistently writes brilliantly mm. for, for older women. Yes. And you'll have someone like Rita, mm. who's like in her 80s now, who still has a full life with love affairs and heartbreaks and spirit and love. And you don't see that on telly. You don't see it. And so it was very hard for me to not project into the future and think, God, you know, it's an amazing job to have as an older woman and it keeps you young as well. Um, but I thought, no, I'll take the risk because now's the time, now's the time to do it. And I've been really, really lucky that, that so far it's worked out for me. So we'll You've see. had a fantastic year. I've had an amazing year and I've played a real range of women mm. and I have played women that exist separately from men as well you know and and that really matters you know that that you have women you know it's the old um Beckdale test isn't it you know that it's women talking to each other about things that aren't men <laughs> you know that's a test of a good yeah. a feminist film and it's and it's amazing how many films do not you know um hate that agenda no, I understand. but so yeah so I think uh I think it has to change and especially as so many of us aging women you know watch telly you know, we want to see ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's like, so, so hopefully that will change. I think things are starting to happen in theatre, certainly, and that often filters through. I think that was one of Linda Bellingham's uh, issues as she was getting older as an actor as well. She wanted to be remembered for her acting more than the, her presenting. So mm. let's hope in the, in the future things will, will evolve. But as you say, it, it does seem to be, and, and soaps, are, are, or sorry, folk operas do, <laughs> do are um, lighting that mm-hmm. flame. Scratch and sniff. Okay, Julie, we always give a celebrity goodie bag to our special guests, uh, but I've created something even more special for you. It is... <laughs> it's basically um, an iconic scene from Coronation Street, but imagining that that was a West End musical on ice. Oh, that, oh, that, and, uh, oh my and God, that is amazing. There it is. Oh, <laughs> that is really, truly amazing. Okay, I'll have to try and describe what describe this it. is. So this is a pump wagon... Um, because when Haley got married for the second time to Roy, uh, she had to arrive by a pump wagon. Because Mary had kind of like messed everything up. And so, so she was on the pump wagon with her two bridesmaids, um, Becky with a fag on, and she has got a fag on here, and Fizz in their blue dresses. And I must say that Haley's looking very svelte <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and glamorous, but I, I appreciate the thoughts. And, uh, we'll put a photo on the website so everybody can see that. Oh, but you that's must a, see it. That's... It is amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> I spent ages making that. I went oh to a toy God, shop. You and... really did, these dresses. I mean, I've got lots of extra little bits, yes. but you can stick on exactly. it. Exactly. That's the West End. That's the, uh, the musical element, definitely. Fantastic. Oh, Fantastic. <laughs> So, finally, so uh, about the future then, would you ever consider going back into a soap? I suppose it's the wrong time to be asking about. It's the wrong time to be asking me, really, because I just feel like... Strictly? Everyone always asks me that all the time. (laughs) At the moment, at the moment, I just want to be doing... uh, I'm interested in new work and new writing and, and... Crucially, and this can't always happen, I realise that, but stuff that has something to say about the world, that's, that's my driving force, really. And if I can keep on along the track that I've been this year, I'll be really happy with that. And that's a lovely full stop to the interview, Julie. Thank you so much for joining Thank us tonight. You. Thank you. And thanks also go to Granada Television Channel 4, the BBC and the Royal Court Theatre, as well as the brilliant and adorable Julie herself. Next week features actor, stand-up comedian and broadcaster Toby Haydock. But until then, from me, Nick Randall, goodbye.